Okay, welcome everybody. Uh, this is the f first of five sessions of the uh, mini-series called Food for Thought, the Torah of Eating here at Web Yeshiva with me, Uri Cohen. And the plan is that, I, I hope this will work, uh, the plan is that we're going to cover three topics in each session. Maybe in one of them we'll cover only two, but the plan is to cover three topics, two Hashkafa topics, uh, two topics that relate to Jewish thought, and one topic that relates to halacha or minhag, Jewish law or, or custom. And then at the end, whether we'll have time or to go over it or not, uh, I have uh, uh, collected a few uh, 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 recipes or uh, suggestions of, uh, of desserts that relate to, uh, to the Parsha. Just in case we don't get to it, the material is available on the, uh, uh, on the course page at uh, at Web Yeshiva, but uh, we have we have a, a, a lot to cover. Let me just do uh, do a very brief introduction. The there's so much to say about food. Uh, what I uh, the topics that that I've chosen, at least the Hashkafa topics uh, that I've chosen, um, are mostly from the first based on the first chapter of this book, Festival of Freedom, uh, Essays on Pesach and the Haggadah by uh, Rabbi Yosef Dov Halevi Salvechik, uh, the Rav. He has an essay which you, would seem to be about the Seder. It's called An Exalted... Uh, no, one second. Yeah, it's called An Exalted Evening, the Seder Night. But most... And he does talk about the Seder, but most of the essay is to try to answer the following question, which is, I'm paraphrasing it, uh, which is, um, what makes our eating different from the eating on the part of animals? People have bodies. We eat because our bodies need nourishment. But animals also eat because they, they need nourishment. What exactly separates us, whether as human beings or as Jews or, or both, um, what exactly separates us and elevates or can elevate our, our eating that, that uh, allows it to be uh, better, uh, more meaningful than that of the, uh, of the animals? That's the question that Rabbi Salvechik uh, poses. And he gives four answers. And we're going to, over the next uh, five weeks, we're going to uh, relate to all four of those answers. In two or three of them, we'll look at uh, some words of, of Rabbi Salvechik. But that's not the point. The point is a general, his general uh, answers are, I'll quickly uh, summarize them now before we get to the first source sheet. Um, first answer of uh, what makes human, what can make human and or Jewish eating special is that animals are not selective. They eat whatever they need to eat. Uh, their bodies know what, what they can handle and that's it. But people can be selective. People don't eat just anything that is technically edible. And then within being selective, we'll, we'll talk momentarily about uh, the idea of, uh, of eating in order to, uh, uh, in order to uh, well, I don't want to give it away. But we'll talk about how kashrut is one type of, of being selective. We'll get to that shortly. That's Rav Salvechik's first answer. His second answer 
is that uh, for an animal, eating is completely uh, mechanical. There's no, there's no understanding of uh, what's, uh, what's going on. But people can have awe when, when they eat. They can be in awe of the food, the people who prepared the food. Uh, there can be eating for a higher purpose. We'll talk about that uh, also in this session. We'll talk about uh, uh, elevating our, our eating uh, by having in mind that we're uh, serving God. And uh, in a couple of weeks, we'll talk about uh, having gratitude. All that is in Rav Salvechik's essay. His third answer of what separates uh, or can separate people from animals in eating is that an animal eats by itself, or at least some animals uh, eat by, by themselves, not necessarily aware of any others, whereas people have the option of combining eating with companionship, with being with, with other people. And Rav Salvechik, that's the, the longest part of, of this uh, essay. He talks about uh, the chesed community, the teaching community. We'll talk about uh, both of those uh, in session four. And finally, uh, Rav Salvechik's fourth answer uh, is that for an animal, eating is limited to the physiological act of gratification. It doesn't relate to anything else. Eating is eating. That's it. It's necessary. That's fine. But people have the option of making, of, of, of putting this activity of eating into a different frame of reference, into making it meaningful in some way. And Rav Zalvechik ties that into uh, to our, our covenant uh, with God, and we're going to uh, end up doing that in the, uh, the fifth session. So those are, that's, that's not everything we're going to say in this uh, uh, mini course, but several of the approaches that I've selected are based on uh, based on the, uh, these four answers of Rav Salvechik. Having said that, let's talk about the first topic, first of uh, of three. One of them is how how we can gain by keeping kosher. Now, there's a lot to say about keeping kosher. Ultimately, we don't know uh, what what the the meaning of uh, of kashrut because uh, it's considered a chok, the type of mitzvah that either there's no explanation for or at least that we don't fully understand. Having said that, among the exp- there, having said that, we explain chukim, we give, uh, we try to understand even the things that aren't necessarily so understandable. And there are a bunch of answers that are given in uh, rabbinic literature to how, what's the meaning of kashrut. Maybe not why God, command, why God commanded it. That would be nice. But at the very least, what we can get out of it. I, I mentioned this in, uh, in other contexts. I think it was in the, in the uh, myth busting. There's two ways to answer the question of why. There's uh, why as in what causes it. And then there's why, what's it for. And at least some, maybe it's only on the level of drash and not pshat. I don't know, but at least some suggest that that's why in rabbinic Hebrew, there are two words for, uh, uh, for why, um, madua and lama. Uh, these days, in, uh, I don't think anybody uses uh, madua anymore, but madua and lama technically both mean why, but if you're going to make a distinction between them, you could say madua is why as in what causes it, and lama is for what? Lama is lema. For what? What's it for? What do I get out of it? That doesn't necessarily mean that explains why it's here in the first place. Why kashrut is here in the first place, uh, you, can, uh, you can give all sorts of, of guesses. But at the very least, we can agree, we can recognize that there are certain positive uh, uh, results that can, that can be associated with kashrut. 
depending on how you look at it, but I just want to present two approaches here, and this is going to fit in with uh, Rav Solvichik's uh, first answer, namely, what can elevate uh, human eating from animal eating? Because humans can be selective. Humans can use their intellect um, to to determine what they want to eat, what they think is appropriate to eat. And even people who don't keep kashrut, pretty much everybody has some sort of diet, has some sort of way in which they limit themselves. And the people who don't limit themselves end up writing books about how they ate uh, this and they ate that and they traveled all over the world and they ate animals that uh, nobody would have ever imagined uh, that, that, that you could eat. But for the rest of us, everybody else has a diet. The question is, what are the rules of your diet? Who's making the rules? What's it for, uh, what do you get out of it? Anyway, so two approaches um, each. And by the way, ju uh, just to contrast with other shirim that I might have given, whether at, here at Web Yeshiva or elsewhere, my, every topic that we're doing for this course is a one-page source sheet, which is a little difficult for me to, uh, to, to do. But, and that's why we're doing three of them uh, in each uh, session. But one page. Two answers. The value of obeying God. This appears in Chazal. It appears in one of the Midrashim that, uh, that explains Kashrut as follows. Let's look at it uh, together. Source number one. On the Pasuk in, uh, in Shmuel Bet, Ha'el tamim darko, God's ways are, uh, are perfect. Imrat Hashem Tsrufa, uh, God's um, uh, speech, where uh, God says is, is um, uh, not purified. Um, trying to think there, there's a there's a better word for it um uh forged it's forged as in forging metal uh god is a shield to everyone who trusts in him uh all of god's ways are, are perfect what does god care that is literally what the midrash just said what does god care whether you kill an animal by slaughtering it from the front through the requirement of shechita in order to make the animal kosher, uh, and then you eat it. What does God care whether you kill the animal that way or whether you, you stab it or maybe you, you chop its head off in some other way? Does the... Does, does it, the way you kill the animal, does it, does it help God or hurt God? No. And furthermore, what does God, what does God care? Whether you eat a kosher, uh, whether you eat a, a non-kosher type of species like a pig or a uh, kosher type of species like a, like a cow. What does God care? And it's, uh, it is, it's, at least for me anyway, it's kind of uh, jarring to see that kind of expression because it sounds like a very modern type of complaint. Ah, uh, what does God care about any of this? Actually, Chazal asked the same question. What does God care? After all, whether I eat this or that, whether I kill an animal this way or that way, it doesn't affect God. God's above that. God is quote-unquote perfect, meaning separate, like the uh, transcendent. What I do does not affect God. Ella, rather... If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. Meaning, if you make what the Torah considers to be the right decision, you're doing it for your own benefit. And that's okay. 
the mitzvot were given to people only with sarif bahem too. There's there's that word to forge them, just like you can forge uh, metal into a a, a, a better, uh, pure uh, type of metal. The purpose of our uh, having mitzvot at all is to forge us into better people, as it says, Imrat Hashem Tzrufa. Lama, why? Shuma Genelacha. Because it, uh, well, no, I'm sorry. Uh, he, he, God is shielding you. God is protecting you. Meaning, what's the connection in the Pasuk that we started with between forging and protecting? God wants to protect us, meaning God wants us to become better versions of ourselves. Therefore, God gives us mitzvot, which can make us into better people. The question th- then is, okay, how? How does my choice of how to kill an animal or which animal or, or any other food choice uh, or any other mitzvah choice, whether to do a mitzvah or not, how does that make me a, a, a better person? That is not explained, meaning it could be that that's the aspect that's still a chok. We still don't even according to this midrash, there's no explanation. Oh, and the reason that making this choice uh, leads you to become this kind of person, that you could argue that that's still on the, uh, on the level of chok. Nevertheless, this is a fascinating concept because, according to this, not only is, uh, not, not not is kashrut something that we do because God said so, it is, but it's for our benefit. That's not obvious at all. If you were talking about a mishpat, uh, a mitzvah, where the reason for it is obvious. Don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery. Lots of societies have, have those, and they're part of the Sheva Mitzvah B'nai Noach. So I, it should be obvious. You know, God wants us to, to live in a stable society, aside from everything else. But to, so to say that a mishpat is for our sake, that. That makes a lot of sense. That's what God gave us these mitzv- these mishpatim so that we can be better people, so that we can have a better society. But that even a chok, like kashrut, that that can be for our sake, that's that's a, a, an unusual idea. The way that Rabbi Harold Kushner puts it, he's a very prominent uh, senior uh, rabbi in the conservative movement. The way he puts it in his book, To Life, uh, is, isn't it incredible? Nearly 8 billion people on this planet, and God cares what I have for lunch. And then he goes on to say, and God cares how I earn and spend my money and whom I sleep with and what sort of language I, I use. What better way is there to invest every one of my daily choices with divine significance? Meaning even if I can't explain the meaning behind a particular mitzvah, a particular uh, rule of kashrut, uh, nevertheless, if you start with the assumption that God is behind it and it's to make us better people, Wow, so then I am, God cares. The idea that God cares about me. Rabbi Kushner is more or less taking the same idea as this, uh, this Midrash. He goes on to say, uh, what the Jewish way of life does by imposing rules on our eating and sleeping and working habits is to take the most common and mundane activities and invest them with deeper meaning, turning every one of them into an occasion for obeying or disobeying God. We're going to come back to this idea uh, on the next page when we talk about um, doing everything with Shem Shemayim, uh, doing everything, hopefully everything we do can be done uh, to serve God, but that minimally the mitzvot that God has given us are opportunities for obeying or disobeying God. So minimally, the value of obeying God is that even if we don't understand how, there is this concept that 
God uh, has our best interest in mind. Uh, I see that Noah asked, could it be that, that uh, mitzvot that are, that are chukim make us better people simply by forcing us to practice constraint? Uh, yeah, not only could it be that, but that's answer number two. Woohoo! Approach number two. Thank you, Noah, for that excellent segue. The value of self-control. This I did not find in a classic source. I found it in Shadal, Rav Shmuel David Lutzato, um, a, an unusual uh, combination of rabbi-scholar in the, uh, in the 1800s. Uh, only some of his uh, commentary has been translated into into English. This is from one, uh, one of his commentaries, one of his books, which has not been translated into English. And he says that in general, mitzvot, not just mitzvot, but chukim, they help us with tikkun hamidot to improve our character traits in two ways, he says. The first way is going to be what we just said. And the second way is going to be self-control. The first one is, mitzvot, mitzvot from God, Shadam Shomer, that a person uh, follows. They remind you of God at all times. I mean, if, if, if you're mindful about it. If you're not mindful, then no, it doesn't remind, remind you of God. But it can. It can. If you just think about why you're doing. In general, this ties into the issue of mindfulness, um, and uh, paying attention to what you're doing. There were, there's so much you could say about that. Um, I'm going to skip it for now, but th this ties into that a lot. That just thinking that God asked me to do that. Uh, in general, when Kashrut is taught, people don't mention God because God said the rules all the way back, you know, very briefly in the Torah, but m almost everything we have of, of Kashrut is Torah Shabbat and there are a zillion details. So God kind of gets lost in the details. It's understandable, but... Really, that's not ideal. The ideal is that when we exercise our kashra choices, oh, in the store, I'm going to buy this, I'm not going to buy that, in the back of my mind, I should think that this is, what, this is what God wants, or at the very least, God cares about what I have for lunch. Even if many of these details are rabbinic, and God didn't give these details directly, but it doesn't matter. God asked us to follow the uh, rabbinic authorities uh, and gave them the... the uh, the right to make these details. So it ends up that directly or indirectly, I'm thinking about, um, about God when I make these, uh, these choices. But, so that more or less is a variation on what we said before, the first approach. The second aspect of how uh, following uh, mitzvot, including chukim, like kashrut, how it makes, you, uh, it makes you a better person is because he says it helps you limshol berucho, it helps you control yourself, as it says in, in Echa, tov gever ki ol bin urav. It's good for a person uh, to to carry a the yoke uh, when he's young, meaning as part of of growing up, you should in, you should learn self discipline. And that's the way he's understanding it. And then he quotes Greek philosopher. I, I mentioned before, uh, Shadal was a scholar as well as uh, Talmud Chacham. Uh, the, the, the philosopher Epictetus, um, I'll uh, just write it out in, uh, in English uh, in the chat. Um, he said, and this is presumably a paraphrase because I doubt that Epictetus was writing in Hebrew. Um, yasim hadam if you just pay attention to these, the following two words. Then, then you won't sin. You will live a life of, of peace. And here they are. 
in, in the Latin, oh, I guess it was Latin, so steen et abstein, sorry if I'm not pronouncing the other Latin correctly, which is literally suffer, but meaning hold yourself back, and abstain, Klomar, Shadal uh, comments, Sivol hatsar ufrosh min hatanug. You should uh, be able. You should take on yourself the the pain of of not getting what you want, and separate separate yourself from indulgences. He says, "Riboy hamitzvot." Most of uh, the uh, or uh, most of the mitzvot or having so many mitzvot. Margil uh, haadam. It gets a person in the hair gel. It gets a person in the habit of limishol berucho to control himself. Just one quick example of this, then we'll move on to the, to, uh, um, the next topic. Rabbi Jack Reamer, another uh, conservative rabbi, uh, m- uh, mentioned this. I, I couldn't find the original, but uh, I, I found a, a sermon in which, uh, quoting Rabbi Reamer, he was in the supermarket and he was very, he was very impressed by something that happened to him. The people in front of me uh, were a man and his child. My guess is the child was probably about five or six years old. They were probably Jewish. They were both wearing kippot and they were speaking Hebrew to each other, right? That's how he guesses that they were Jewish. So the, father, the child said, what all little children say when they're, when they're in a supermarket, can I have these cookies? The father took the cookies, read the ingredients carefully and said, no, they're not kosher. That's not the climax of the story. The climax of the story is what happened next. You know what happened next? Nothing. The kid said, okay, and that was the end of it. So Rabbi Reamer uh, uh, comments. I was deeply moved by this brief encounter. Here was a child who, at the age of five or six, had already learned the meaning of a word of which many grown-ups, many grown-ups, have not learned the meaning. He had learned, thanks to the fact that his family keeps kosher, the meaning of the word "no." The meaning of the word "no." That is something that more people need to think about. If if we can instill it in ourselves as when we're young, and the assumption is if we can extend it, not just limit it to kashrut. Yes. Oh, yes. I learned kashrut when I was a little kid, so I know all the rules of kashrut. No, no. You're supposed to extrapolate from that the value of controlling yourself and being selective of what you eat. As Rabbi Salvechik said, that's what separates us from, from animals. That is intrinsically a good thing. It, self-control is intrinsically a good thing, even when you don't have in mind that it's from God. If you have in mind that it's from God, then you can have both of these together. The value of obeying God and the value of self-control. So just, just to, uh, to wrap up this, uh, this, this topic, one of Rabbi Salvechik's answers to the question of what separates human eating, what can separate human eating from animal, uh, animals eating is we can be selective of what we eat. In the case of Jews, uh, following uh, halacha, we are selective by, uh, by keeping kashrut. And now we're moving on to the other Hashkafa topic, which is going to relate to a different answer of Salvechik gave, gives to the same question, and that is eating L'Shem Shamayim for the sake of heaven. This is how we uh, transform a physical activity into a spiritual activity. And the, the source of this idea goes all the way back to Perkei Avot here in source number one. Everything you do should be for the sake of heaven. So the question is, what does that translate into? I found two approaches. There are probably many approaches, but two that are, appear in classic sources, in my major, major sources, the Shulchan Aruch and the Mishnah Torah of, uh, of the Rambam. Uh, Rav Karo, 
in the Shulchan Aruch, in Orachim Siman Reish Wamed Aleph, he has a separate Siman, separate section, which in the Mishnah Burah is, is an entire page, separate section of Halacha called, everything you do should be for the sake of heaven. And it's based on Rabbeinu Yonah. We're not going to read the uh, Rabbeinu Yonah inside. In fact, we're not even going to read the entire Shulchan Aruch, but just a little bit. Rav Karo quotes Perki Avot here, and he interprets it as follows. Not only should you follow halacha, and you should make sure to do what you have to do, make sure to avoid doing what you're not allowed to do. That's, that's the letter of the law. But above the, and beyond the letter of the law, even things that are optional, reshut, kigon, for example, eating and drinking, right? It doesn't, beyond kashrut, the Torah doesn't tell us how to eat and drink, how much, whether to uh, eat in a, the, the minimum that, that, that we need to, uh, to be healthy or to eat healthier food. The Torah doesn't address that directly. Uh, the Ramban uh, elsewhere, when he talks about Kadoshim to you, how to be holy, the example that he gives of how somebody can follow the entire Torah and still be a disgusting person, what's his example? Gluttony. You could follow all the laws of Kashrut and still turn into a disgusting person if, uh, if, you, if you act like a glutton. So that's, that fits very well with this, that technically the glutton is not violating anything, but it doesn't matter. That's an example of how you eat or how much you eat. That's up to you. You should take that, turn that into the way to serve God, which we're about to see now. Rav Karo says, eating and drinking, you're walking, sitting, Akima, getting up, Vatashmish, sex, Vasicha, speaking, and all the needs of your body. all of them, They should be directed, all of them should be directed to the service of God. Oh, or Or they should be directed to something that itself can lead to serving God. We'll see an example of this in the Rambam. He doesn't, uh, uh, he doesn't give that many uh, examples here, but the way that he sums it up, and this is not the whole thing. It's, uh, there's, there's more I recommend going through it in the Shulchan Aruch, uh, which you can find in the, the Mishabur's commentary on the Shulchan Aruch as well. Uh, the general rule is, Rav Karo sums up, Chayav Adam, a person should, not Chayav obligated halachically, but morally obligated. You should set your eyes and your heart on your ways. In other words, you should be mindful. You should be aware of what you're doing. And you should weigh all of your actions in the, on the scales of your intellect. You should decide whether to do something or not, not just based on what it says in the Torah, that too, but also based on what makes sense, what is appropriate. So when you see something you can do, that will, you can use to serve God, do that. And if you think that doing that, whatever that is, is not going to bring you closer to God, don't do that. What is this? This is asking myself not only what did God tell me in the Torah, what did God authorize the rabbis to tell me, with, let's say, with, with Kashrut and, and other halachot, but what would God want me to do? Somebody who acts this way, Oveded Borot Tamid, is serving his creator 
all the time. Meaning, you can keep halacha and serve God periodically. Every time you make a kosher decision, that's the way of serving God. Every time you, you, uh, you say a, a, an official prayer, you're serving God. But how about the rest of the day? Could be you're on your own. Technically, you are. But he's saying you have the option of elevating even ordinary things to the service of God if you think about how it can help you serve God. Or if you, if you make choices based on whether it will help you serve God. That's Rav Karo. A variation of this, which is more like, let's be stereotypical, Rambam, who is not only a rabbi, but also a doctor. The Rambam writes in Hilchot Deot, he quotes the same idea, but he puts it in terms of health. When you eat, you should not just eat because it, you're eating kosher food. You should eat so that your body will be healthy. When you eat and drink, don't have in mind that you're just enjoying it only. It's not that you can enjoy it, but not only to enjoy it. Uh, because if that's the only thing you have in mind when you eat, then it'll turn out you'll end up eating only the stuff that, that's sweet. Right. Well, grown-ups are supposed to stop doing that, Right. We eat sweet stuff for dessert, but not for the whole meal, right? Where grown-ups are not supposed to uh, be in the situation where they eat so much candy that they have a stomach ache. Right? That's, that's what you expect from a kid who doesn't have any self-control. But adults are supposed to have self-control, going back to what we said before. Ella, rather, the Rambam says, Yasima Libo, what should you have in mind when you eat? Sheyochav yishtek dewav rod gufo that you, you eat and drink in order to make your body healthy. And consequently, you don't eat just anything your body desires, anything your palate desires, like a dog or a donkey. Notice that this going, goes back to the, what separates people from, from animals. Rather, you should eat the things that you know are good for your body, whether they're sweet or, uh, or not. And you should make sure not to eat the things that, that you, uh, to the best of your medical knowledge, uh, you know, are, are not good for you. So that's a uh, second approach that appears in the Rambam. Uh, that is in uh, Hilchot Deot Perik Gimel Halacha Bet. And the next Halacha, just going to see this very briefly, he says, he specifies a little bit more, Yasim Alibo, you should have in mind, what, why am I eating this? So that my body will be Complete, my body will be strong. Why do I want my body to be strong? So that my soul, so that my intellect, depending on how you, you read this, will, will be able to, uh, to serve God as well. So the idea of a sound mind in a, in a sound body, the Rambam thinks this goes together. And not just from a doctor perspective, but that, meaning, you need to, Act like a human being and be selective of what to eat because you want your body to be strong. But why do you want your body to be strong? So that you can serve God properly. They're both correct. So the Rambam brings up the health aspect, which Rav Karo, following Rabbeinu Yonah, they, they do not bring that up, but it ends up being a variation on the, on the same idea. And the Rambam goes on to say, and, and then when, when, you, uh, when you're walking, uh, when, when you're sleeping, and then he quotes the same the same. Uh, Mission Perkei Avot that Rav Karo uh, 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 we saw quoted. Uh, all, all, all your actions should be for the sake of heaven. And as it says in Mishlei, oh, 
we didn't see it inside, but Rav Kara quotes this as well. Behold, Rachacha de'ehu. You should know God in all your ways. So knowing God in all your ways is, is uh, presume, presumably, maybe not at all times, because that might be really hard, but when you're making a choice. When you're making a choice about what to do next or how to do what you're doing next. If you can think about how this is going to serve God or not, that, that would be the ideal. And, uh, and just to, to wrap up this section with a quote, uh, which is from uh, uh, two quotes from, from uh, Hasidic, uh, Hasidic masters, Reb Elimelch of Lezhensk, uh, who's the, he's the better known one, and Noam Elimelch, and Rav Zechariah Mandel. Uh, both of these quotes I got from this book, uh, Jewish Spiritual Practices, uh, by, uh, by Yitzchak uh, Buxbaum. Uh, it's, uh, it's a pretty big book. It's over 700 pages. Um, he pulls together in all sorts of different categories ideas from Musar literature and Hasidic literature about how to make everything in your life a spiritual thing. So that's, I haven't gone through a lot of it, but the stuff that I've gone through has, uh, has some useful stuff. Uh, so the quote from Elimelech Elimelech is, You have to sanctify yourself in eating, drinking, and money. More than you have to sanctify yourself when you learn Torah or when you pray to God. He goes on to say, why? Because when you're... When you're doing things that are obviously spiritual, learning Torah or praying, the Eight Sahara has less power over you because you're already doing a, you know, a godly thing, a spiritual thing. But when you are doing physical things, doing things that relate to this world, ah, then the Eight Sahara, the, uh, the, the side of you that wants to, uh, that pushes you to make the wrong decisions, it's got more power. It's easier to convince people oh, I don't have to make the right choice because there isn't the right choice here. It's only eating or it's only business. Business is business or all is fair and love and war and other things where halacha doesn't obviously apply. It's easy to forget that these can be ways of sanctifying oneself. And Rabbi Elimelech goes on to say, when it comes to a tzaddik, remember in, in Hasidic literature, the tzaddik is the, the ultimate person, not just a righteous person, but the, uh, the ideal for a for a tzaddik, ein chiluk bein Torah otfila o achilu There's no difference between learning Torah, praying to God, or eating and drinking. Hakolhu, uh, everything for a tzaddik is avodat habore. It's all the service of God. So when the the tzaddik is finished davening and goes to eat. The tzaddik isn't leaving spirituality and going to the material, the physical world. No, the tzaddik is simply going from one way of serving God to another way of, uh, of serving God. This is what we might associate with the Hasidic, the classic Hasidic idea of sanctifying uh, the world. Um, there's a, a chapter on this in uh, Rabbi Norman Lamb's book, Torah Umada, in which he wants to extend this Hasidic idea to the study of uh, general studies even though the Hasidim themselves don't actually do that. He admits that. Uh, but just uh, one, more, one more Hasidic quote. This is from the Dark Age Tzedek, uh, not as well-known a, a book. Uh, Rav Zechariah Mendel writes, Ikar Wow. Not only is it also a way to serve God, 
you can also serve God through eating. He says, no, no, no. The main way of serving God is not through the spiritual, but through the physical. Wow. And then he says something which is similar to uh, Rav, uh, uh, Rav Elimelech. The way, way he formerly would say it is, Hatzadikim choshvim ve'ochlim. The, the, the tzadikim, when they're thinking or when they're eating, be'ahavav yirat Hashem. They're, they're always feeling uh, love of God and, and, uh, and awe of God. Kemobat just like when they're praying. So fascinating uh, idea. I just saw this quote, the... Uh, uh, the other day, not about eating, but about um, uh, doing the right thing. Uh, one second, I get the uh, the name of the book. Um, yes, uh, there is a picture book um, uh, written by Richard uh, Mickelson and illustrated by Raul Colon. It's called As Good as Anybody, Martin Luther King and Abraham Joshua Heschel's Amazing March Toward Freedom. Uh, uh, I just uh, re- uh, read it or reread it. Uh, as picture books go, I think it's uh, it's pretty good. The text, uh, the pictures, and it has the line in there, the famous line from Rabbi Abram Joshua Heschel, uh, reflecting on marching with uh, Dr. King for uh, for civil rights. I felt like my legs were praying, which sounds kind of funny, but he was coming from a Hasidic uh, tradition. Uh, he was, uh, if he hadn't, become a professor at the Jewish Theological Seminary. He could have been the Opta Rav, you know, like his namesake, Rav Avram Yeshua Heschel of Opta. Okay, so it sounds funny when you hear it in English, but I was, uh, Rabbi Heschel was, uh, was uh, just saying a variation on this classic uh, Hasidic uh, idea. Okay, so now we're done with the Hashkafic part of, uh, of this uh, session. Now I want to move into, into a topic that relates to halacha or minhag, and not necessarily directly connected to the Ashkafa topic. Okay, why do we cover the challahs during uh, Kiddush on Shabbat? Now, you probably have heard of a reason. You know, you might have even heard of two reasons. But it turns out that there are three reasons. This is not myth busting. I'm not going to argue that uh, that, what, that what you've heard is uh, is all is all wrong. Uh, but there is a third reason, and they appear, all three reasons appear in, uh, in the Rishonim. Uh, we're not going to go through the, the source in great detail, but just, uh, just briefly, Tosfot, the first one chronologically to, uh, to mention this, uh, quotes an even earlier source, the Sheiltot, written by one of the Gaonim, meaning rabbis, the heads of, uh, of the Babylonian Yeshivot, before the time of, uh, of the Rishonim, more or less, before, the, before uh, a, a thousand or so, Covering the uh, the challah, covering the the bread that you're about to uh, to make a motzi on, is in order to make this meal yikara de shabata. The the yikara is uh, kavod to to make this meal in honor of Shabbat. The question is why does covering the the challah uh, make it uh, a situation of honoring Shabbat? It doesn't have to be complicated. You could just say. Normally, even if you eat uh, bread at every meal, and people used to do that, um, they wouldn't cover the bread. Covering the bread is saying this meal is special. We only do this uh, for, uh, for Shabbat and, and Yom Tov. That's good enough. That's a reason to cover it. It's not because of Kiddush per se. It's because of Shabbat. Shabbat is special. That's the first reason. For some reason, nobody's ever heard of that one. 
but it's the first one given chronologically. And then Tosok goes on to give a second reason. Some say, Zecher Laman, covering the, uh, the bread before we, uh, we make a motzi is in order to remember the man, the manna that, uh, that um, God gave us in the desert, which, according to the Gemara, did not fall on Shabbat and Yom Tov. So Shabbat was a way to remember, wow, you know, Shabbat is special. They didn't have uh, calendars back then, but the man, which was a miraculous thing every day, it did not fall on Shabbat. Or Yom Tov, and when it did fall, there was dew. There was a layer of tal dew above the man and below the man. The man was in the middle. So when you make a motzi on lechem mishnah, it's not spelled out here, but lechem mishnah having two loaves doesn't. They don't have to be challah, but ideally they should be two loaves. Why do we have two loaves at all? That's also because of, uh, of the man. A double portion of man fell on, uh, on Friday. So an extra way to remember the man is to have a covering above it, the, the bread, the covering above and the covering below it. So the covering below it is the covering of your tablecloth, assuming that there's a value in having a tablecloth. And people talk about that as well as making Shabbat special. But the covering above it, it's not because of Shabbat directly. And it certainly is not because of Kiddush. It's to remember the man. Okay, that's the, uh, uh, the second answer. The Mordechai, one of the uh, followers of, of Tosfot, living a, a little bit later in the, uh, the 1200s, he mentions the uh, honoring Shabbat, and then he says, but I don't understand. To honor Shabbat, it should be enough if you cover the bread at night. Why should you also have to cover it by day? Like, at night, you're ushering in Shabbat, but in the morning, it's already here. So why should you cover it during the day as well? So he says, there must be another reason. Not necessarily the first one is wrong, but not, not enough. And the, the extra reason that he gives is not the man, but a different reason. So as not to, quote unquote, embarrass the bread. What do you mean? He explains. The whole yom, every day, ordinarily, if you have, if you're, if you're starting your meal with bread and wine, following ordinary rules of brachot, which one do you make the bracha on first? The bread, because bread is the most important uh, food or, or drink in, uh, in halacha. So, and this is, in fact, a practical halacha. If for whatever reason you have wine, it's not Shabbat or Yom Tov, you have wine and, uh, and bread, you don't, you don't say the bracha, you don't say bari first, you make a moti first. And then whether you make a separate break break off or not depends on, uh, on other issues. But but now on Shabbat, we are saying the bracha on the wine first. Why are we doing that? Because the mitzvah, special mitzvah of Kiddush. So since we are not giving the bread the usual great honor of going first, therefore we cover it so it doesn't have to, so we're not uh, disrespecting uh, the bread. That's formulated as so we don't embarrass the bread. Nobody actually thinks that bread has feelings. But the way the Mordechai formulates it here, it's, it's not about feelings. It's about a reminder that the rules of brachot, the order of brachot on Shabbat, are different from the, uh, the, the order of brachot uh, during the rest of the week. And in fact, he goes on to say, I heard from Rabbi Avraham, one of his teachers, that Let's say you come to sit down for your Shabbat meal 
and let's say the, the bread is uncovered. Well then, then you would have to uh, have to make a motzi before kiddush. Meaning, according to this, it's not that it's uh, it's not that we're we don't want to disrespect the bread. It's that we want to follow the rule of making kiddush before a motzi. In order to follow that rule, the bread has to be covered, or else we would be obligated to follow the regular rule. If the bread is covered, then we can say, oh. I don't see any bread. I guess I'll make the bracha on, uh, on the wine. What Rabbi Avram just did here is he came to the same conclusion, but without anthropomorphism, without talking about the feelings of, uh, of the bread. So if you ever meet anybody who says, well, this stupid thing about why, why are we pretending that bread has, uh, has feelings? You could argue that at least the way that, the second way that, that the Mordechai presents this idea, it's not actually about uh, anthropomorphizing uh, the bread. Okay, um, just a little bit more on, on this. What are the practical differences between these reasons? Every time you have uh, a halacha and then multiple reasons for the halacha, there might very well be practical differences between whether this is the reason or, or that is the reason. And a couple of these appear in the Mishnah Bura, and a couple of them appear in the contemporary book Piskei Chuvot. I'll just uh, summarize them now. Let's say you're making Kiddush on the bread which is, seems a little weird, but there is a thing. For whatever reason, you don't have any access to, uh, to wine or, or, or grape juice. You have bread. Well, then you're supposed to do Netiyot Yadayim, say Kiddush, and then make a motzi. And that way you fulfill, it's Bidyeved, it's not ideal, but okay, you fulfill the, uh, um, uh, the mitzvah of Kiddush even without, uh, without wine. That's... that's uh, uh, right. So, according to this, the Mishaburah says, let's say you're doing Kiddush on bread. There's no reason to cover the bread if the reason to cover the bread is in the, in the presence of wine. There is no wine. We're talking about a case where there is no wine. Then there's no reason to cover the bread. That's if you follow that reason. But if you say, oh, well, it's Zecher Laman, covering the bread has nothing to do with Kiddush, it's uh, because we want to have a covering on top and a covering below the bread, well, then it has nothing to do with whether there's Kiddush, then, then you should always cover the, uh, the bread. That's a practical difference, whether, whether you, we think this reason is the uh, better one or uh, the other one's the, uh, the better one. Uh, and then he goes on to say that, uh, how about when should, you, when should you uncover the bread? If... The, the point of covering the bread is because of Kiddush, because you should have the bread covered in the presence of the wine. Well, then, right after you make Kiddush, you should be able to uncover the bread, because with the reason about the, uh, uh, about the order brachot is not relevant anymore. You already said the first brachot. But if you say that it's in memory of, to commemorate the man, well, then in that case, again, it has nothing to do with Kiddush, then maybe you should keep the bread covered until... Uh, not just until you're about to make the motzi, until actually after the motzi. Some people do this. I've seen this. They make it look like a magic trick. They, like, they pick up the, uh, the bread underneath the cover. They're like, ooh, I wonder what this person's holding. Um, they're following this opinion. It's also very dramatic. Uh, I don't follow this opinion. Uh, well, my wife makes the motzi in my house anyway most, most of the time. But whichever one of us makes the motzi, we take the, uh, the challah cover off beforehand because we don't think that 
the symbolism of the man has to extend up through the uh, the bracha. So that does not have to uh, depend on this. Uh, how about a transparent challah cover? Aha, does that count or not? Okay, just, just to mention that as a uh, uh, as a possibility, it's brought up in uh, in source uh, source number four. That might be a practical difference between the uh, the uh, the different reasons, but this one is actually a practical one. Okay. My wife follows the strict opinion that no food is on the table until after the motzi. We don't put out any food at all. And if for whatever reason we had to put out food, we would cover it. Why? Because there is an opinion, Ramosha Feinstein, not just a random person, but like a very important uh, postic, he says that all of the bread and the other food if it's on the table, it should all be covered during Kiddush. Not just what you're going to make a motzi on. Meaning you could say, first of all, you could say, well, only what I'm going to, only the bread needs to be covered, not other food. Or you could say, only the bread that I'm going to make a motzi on has to be covered. Let's say for whatever reason, I have like a bread basket. I have a Metlecha Mishnah. There's also uh, other bread on the table. Do I have to cover the other bread also? So you could say, no, if you follow the opinion that it's about either making Shabbat special or remembering the man, it has nothing to do with the rest of the bread. This bread, these two loaves that are making a motzi on, these should be covered. But the other stuff doesn't have to be covered. Okay, but if you follow the opinion that it's about what bracha you say, uh, what, what food is exposed uh, in the presence of the kiddush, in the presence of the wine, should you make a kiddush when other food is on the table, if you're following that opinion, then there's room to say that either all the other bread should be covered or possibly all the other food uh, should be covered. Lots of people are not strict like this, but the reason to be strict is if you're following that, the opinion that it's about the, uh, the order of the, uh, of the brachot. Um, let's just uh, wrap up this section by talking about people who miss the point. Okay, Rav Mordechai Kamenetsky tells a story about Rav Shraga Mendelovitz. I heard this story told about Rav Yisrael Salanter, but I couldn't find it documented anywhere. Apparently, it's a story told about a great uh, ethical person. It seems more likely that it's about Rav Shraga because if it were really Rav Yisrael Salanter, I would have expected it to be all over the place that he's... Anyway, so Rav Shraga uh, was the founder of Yeshiva Tarvadat. Tar once he stayed in Miami for Shabbos, the ho- home of a former student. Uh, when the, the man opened the door, after coming home from shul, he was shocked and embarrassed. His wife, exhausted from a week's worth of child rearing and the responsibility of keeping a home, was sprawled on the couch. The Shabbos table was half set. The dishes placed in a pile next to the kiddush cup and wine in front of the head seat were two large challahs sitting uncovered. Da, da, da. The student called out to his wife in a demeaning manner. Let's prepare the table in its entirety. You know, like, like, I can't believe, you know, I brought home the great rabbi. Uh, and this is what my house looks like. Turning his mentor, he exclaimed, I'm sure that leaving the bread uncovered was an oversight. Everyone knows, he exclaimed, shifting his self-inflicted embarrassment on his wife, that we must cover the challah before the kiddush. Rav Mendelovitz was annoyed at the man's self-righteous behavior. This is the way that Rav Kamenetsky is telling the story. 
Rev Mendelevitz said, you know, over the years, I've heard many problems that people faced. Students, couples, adults from all walks of life have entered my office to discuss their personal situations with me. Not once did a chala ever enter my office suffering an inferiority complex because it was left uncovered during Kiddush. You know why? Because we are not concerned with the chala. We are concerned about making ourselves cognizant of feelings. We worry about chalas, or we go through the motions of worrying about chalas, because the goal is to worry about people. How then can you embarrass your wife over not covering the chala when the act of covering is supposed to train you in sensitivity? Ouch! Okay, good story. It's a good story that reminds us that sometimes even the opinions that look silly actually have something uh, deep and, and profound about them. So when you're teaching uh, people who are not aware of this about covering the challah, if they're, uh, if they're not aware, tell them we cover the challah so as not to embarrass the, uh, the kiddush cup, the kiddush, whatever, the wine, and then tell them the story. So to put it in, uh, in proper perspective. Okay. Um, I, before, I want to wrap up this topic and briefly share with you some recipes and snack ideas that relate to Parsha Balodcha, which those of you who are outside of, uh, of the land of Israel are uh, reading in Shabbat this week, and also Parsha Shlach, which we in Israel are reading this week. So um, these are just, in each case, I have two pages. Um, if you want to print them out, you know, I hope if you have a color, uh, a color printer, good idea. But if you have a black and white printer, it's not necessarily going to look so, uh, so impressive. Anyway, so just a couple of them uh, with t- tie in with, ba- and then just very briefly, and then, uh, and then, uh, then I'll, t- I'll look at the chat. Uh, in Parsha Balodcha, the Slav, the quail, somebody came up with making a bunch of little babkas that, uh, that look, like, look like birds, okay? Uh, someone else, these are both from the Facebook group called Parsha Desserts. Um, someone else came up with the idea of having uh, brownies that are very long and you put on each one well, uh, something that looks like a match to represent the, uh, the lighting of the, uh, of the menorah. going to skip the uh, next part just in the uh, interest of, uh, of time. Uh, Double Portion is a blog from a little over 10 years ago. Um, by somebody who, came, who wrote, Alicia uh, Gechter, who she wrote a whole bunch of recipes, each elaborate recipes, each one tying into something in the parsha. So she mentions that in Balodcha, there's meat, quail, fish, watermelon, cucumbers, onions, leeks, and garlic. That's a lot of different types of food mentioned in the parsha. So her recipes are fish with garlic cilantro sauce and uh, watermelon and, uh, and cucumber salad. So that's our recipes for Balotcha. For those of you who are in Eretz Israel, we have recipes for Parshat Shlach. Don't worry, those of you who are outside of Israel, I'll up, uh, upload this page also next week uh, for, for Shlach. One of the uh, uh, famous, besides the spies, one of the topics in Parshat Shlach is tzitzit at the end of the, uh, the Parsha. So here's tzitzis Oreos, which is chocolate-covered Oreos, which are then covered with uh, tzitzit made with a in white, white chocolate uh, mold. Anyway, uh, it, and then, of course, you need to put it in this very fancy uh, plastic uh, holder. Uh, uh, very, uh, very impressive. Um, and uh, if you don't have a mold, then you, you buy white and blue pull and peel licorice. Uh, right, and that's more or less in the next version, which probably took a little less time. Um, we have uh, uh, crackers or, I guess, square 
uh, uh, cookies that have the uh, the white frosting and then the the uh, the blue uh, licorice to uh, to represent the uh, the tzitziot. Very cute. Um, that's actually from uh, that was actually just posted uh, just posted yesterday on the Parsha Desserts blog from by this woman Melanie who has her own Instagram account called Parsha Desserts. Uh, and uh, and finally, uh, Rena Rosner, who has uh, written a bunch of of, uh, of novels. I, I've read uh, I've read uh, one of them, uh, fantasy with the Jewish themes. Uh, she also wrote a bunch of recipes and published a cookbook of recipes that relate to the Parsha, glossy photos, etc. But before she did that, she first wrote it over the course of a couple of years in the Jerusalem Post, and th- this is the original recipe. Uh, from the uh, that appeared in Jerusalem Post in 2007, um, that the spies brought back grapes and pomegranates and figs. So the obvious thing to do is serve maraglim fruit salad. And here's the picture copied from her book, uh, which you it looks like ordinary fruit salad, but it's in memory of the uh, the spies. Okay, so uh, that's uh, just a few a few uh, uh, interesting ideas about. Um, that, that you could use either for food in general or, uh, or, or desserts for, uh, for the Parsha. Um, so I want to thank everybody for, uh, for joining me. Let's look at the chat. Um, okay, Rebecca asked, were tables covered with a tablecloth on weekdays at the time of toast vote? I don't know. I'm guessing not, uh, but, but I'm not sure. Uh, I guess you'd you'd have to uh, uh, you'd have to speak with a historian of uh, early medieval Franco Germany or whatever 1100s uh, 1200s. I'm not sure. Uh, Mark said the miracle of the Mon occurred on Friday morning. Why don't we commemorate it then? Right, because that's be- because the miracle. Uh, was well there's a lot to say but just just one possibility is that there's a miracle of when something happens at the right time and there's a miracle when something doesn't happen at the right time so shabbat uh the jews could tell when it was shabbat by the man not falling uh and the way that they commemorate this hashem told them before shabbat is you need to have you will have a double portion on friday double portion on friday is for the sake of shabbat so on Shabbat, the rabbi said, we need to have three meals because it's mentioned three times in the Pasuk about the man. It's mentioned about having a double portion. So having the three meals, having two loaves, that's all for the man. That's all straight out of the Gemara. So in the Middle Ages, rabbis, rabbis coming up with the idea of, of covering the man, on, uh, sorry, covering the chala, covering the other uh, loaves on the top and the bottom is just fitting into this scheme that we're already commemorating the, uh, the man on uh, on Shabbat. Uh, I see that Mark wrote, covering the bread is sort of like the fiction of covering your eyes during, uh, during candlelighting. Um, that, that would be an interesting uh, topic to, uh, to do. Like, when do we cover which parts and, uh, and why? Um, covering the, I mean, technically, covering the eyes for, during candlelighting is for a different reason. Um, the question is, is that actually necessary or not? And who said you have to go like this, you know, three times? Because that's, the way that your mother did it, and that's the way that uh, that her mother did it. Um, my impression is that that's not actually required, but that would be an interesting thing to uh, to look at, you know. And, and then while we're at it, you know, covering uh, uh, covering the eyes during the Shema, 
Um, and uh, not looking at the Kohanim during a Birka Kohanim. Okay, that's not exactly covering it. We discussed that in, in, uh, in myth busting. Um, I see that Noah asked, why not just be Machmir and cover the bread in all cases? Um, was that was that talking about, I don't remember uh, what we were saying at that time. It was in relation to when do we cover the bread? Like, do we need to cover it? Like, immediately, do we need to cover, like, when to cover it and when to uncover it? Because there's no harm in just covering it. Right, right. So I think that's probably, that's probably why, I mean, look, there's no, uh, there's no absolute, there's no, like, bottom, bottom line on this. That's probably why I'm guessing that a lot of people, that, that people do usually not uncover the bread right away, but they just wait until they're about to make the mozi. The question is, do they take the, the, uh, the uh, cover off bef- right before making the mozi or right after? But that, I would argue that that's uh, a relatively minor difference. But since you mentioned, I just want, want to add something that I skipped before, but it's, it's near the end of source number number four on, uh, on, the, on the page about covering the challah. The Aruch HaShulchan thinks the main reason is the don't embarrass the bread thing. Um, and that's why uh, he suggests that even though some rabbi wrote, your challah cover should be white because the man was described as, uh, as being white or, or the layer was described as being white. The Aruch says, no, no, it's not. We, you don't have to go that far. The main, that's not even the main reason anyway. Uh, and uh, the Piskei Chuvot quotes the Sarah Hashulchan and says, maybe that's why um, many people do not cover all the rest of the food. Uh, uh, or even just the other breads. Let's say you're at a meal with a lot of people and everybody has their own, has their own bread. Um, but one person made, uh, made Kiddush. And a, a lot of those uh, yeshivot camps, whatever, they don't tell everybody, you have to cover, everybody has to cover their own bread during Kiddush. Why not? Well, there is an opinion that you should, but it's not necessary, meaning it, it's following the, uh, the stricter opinion. Um, and that's okay, but that it, doesn't, it, it does not become an actual uh, obligation. Um, see that uh, Mark wrote, he's seen people cover the Mizono during uh, the Kiddush, right? Noah points out that covering the eyes for a candle lighting is for a different reason, so as not to benefit from, uh, from the white before making the bracha, and, the, and just to keep it going and covering the eyes during the Shema is so that we don't get distracted. Uh, uh, nevertheless, it's interesting to compare and contrast. Um, and there are people who give other reasons for, for each of these. Um, anyway, um, some good, good points here. Does anybody have any last uh, comments that they want to make either in the chat or, uh, or by uh, unmuting themselves and, uh, and, and talking? I just wanted to say thank you, but also I really like the way this particular class is. It's got, you've got like theoretical philosophical thing and then the practical stuff. It's a really fun little combo. I like it very much. Thank you. And don't forget the, uh, the fun Parsha stuff at the end. Um, when I, I taught this uh, uh, earlier, a variation of this uh, earlier this year at Midrash at Moriah, um, I also brought in Parsha snacks just to make it more interesting. Um, but that we can't do for, uh, uh, for technical reasons. Uh, but, uh, but that is, uh, if you're actually teaching this in person, so that would be, that would be the next level. Bring in something that everybody can, uh, uh, can eat 
uh, or prepare or decorate or whatever. Uh, and, and a bunch of the blogs that, that deal with Parsha food, that's what they're doing. They're, let's have Parsha fun. Let's have Parsha activities with our kids, whether it's a, uh, something in the kitchen or, or an arts and crafts project. There's a whole bunch of, um, of those blogs and, uh, and, and, uh, and websites and uh, Facebook groups. Anyway, thanks again to everybody for, uh, for joining me and uh, hope to see you uh, uh, next week. Uh, next week we will have one, as, as of now anyway, next week will be the only week in which we'll have one, only one Hushkafa topic instead of two, but that's because it'll be a big Hushkafa topic, namely the topic of vegetarianism. That'll be a Hushkafa topic and it'll also be a Halakha topic, so we'll end up talking pretty much the whole time about uh, vegetarianism. It's something I have a, a lot invested in personally, so uh, that's my personal uh, bias. Anyway, once again, thanks, everybody, for, for joining me. Have a Shabbat Shalom, and have a great week. Thank you very much, Rabbi. Thank you. Okay. Take care.